0: me ask you to open up your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Tonight we will return to our verse-by-verse study of the book of Exodus. We still have some really tough questions to deal with concerning the 10th plague. I promised you as a church that we would try and address the issue of Of why a good and a holy God would would kill little children in the 10th plague as he did in in Egypt. That's the kind of thing that people in our modern age particularly struggle with. And so uh, tonight I want to try and give some some help in thinking through uh, that kind of issue. But there are times when it is good and when it is appropriate for us to interrupt our regularly scheduled preaching plan... In order to address issues that are confronting us as a church right now. And I think this is surely one of those times. Uh, This past Friday, unsurprising to any of us who have been following the trajectory of the Supreme Court over the last few years, uh, the court ruled in a five to four decision that the U.S. Constitution gives every American. The right to marry someone of the same gender. And that states must now issue marriage licenses and give all of the legal rights and legal privileges. Extended to traditionally married couples. Now to same-sex married couples as well. Now there's much that I'm tempted to say about the decision itself. I think Chief Justice John Roberts said it best in his dissent when he said, Do not celebrate the Constitution if you celebrate legalized same-sex marriage because it had nothing to do with it. And I think that's right. What we're seeing in our day is the highest court in our land utterly throwing aside logic and the responsibility to root their decisions in the plain text of the U.S. Constitution. Both decisions, big decisions that we saw this week, the Obamacare decision, the same-sex marriage decision, Um, if you look at where they rooted those in the Constitution, uh, you're left scratching your head. And those who have a love for the kind of government that our founding fathers established have all the more reason to pray that our high court would return to the principles on which it was founded. I'm going to put all of that aside and address the implications of the same-sex marriage decision for us as Christians, because this decision raises many questions for followers of Jesus Christ in America. Are you ready to be called a bigot and a person of hatred because you believe what the Bible says about this issue? Are you ready to give up your job when your job requires you to affirm same-sex marriage? For a long time, especially here in the Bible Belt, we Christians have been the majority culture. Not that everyone in the Bible Belt was a believer, but, but Christian values, Christian ideals were generally held by the public. Those days are quickly disappearing if they're not already gone. And we're going to have to learn what it is to be the minority in our culture. We're going to have to learn what it is to be where believers, and especially Baptists, have been, and almost every other period of our history, a minority group, seeking to be faithful to Jesus Christ. Now, I have an obligation before God this morning. It's not my obligation alone. Pastor Merle shares this obligation with me. We, we have an obligation to shepherd the flock of God concerning this issue. We've spoken on it uh, a few times before. We had a small group meeting devoted to portions of this subject. But this decision by our land's highest court impresses upon me the urgency of dealing with this subject from the pulpit. Pastors are called to protect God's people by declaring warnings that can save us from falling into sin. And there are lots of ways that we can fall into sin on these kinds of issues. On the one hand, we can sin by embracing or even affirming homosexuality and same-sex marriage. But on the other hand, we can also sin by being cruel or unloving or sharp-tongued or disrespectful or uncompassionate towards those who have embraced such things. And so I want to try and bring us some biblical clarity. I want to try and bring us some biblical guidance on this subject. And so our starting text is 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9. First Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9. This is the very word of God. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, This morning, relying primarily on this text and uh, Romans 1, 26 and 27, alongside a few others, I want to lay out for us 10 propositions concerning how we should think about this issue of same-sex marriage. 10 propositions. Don't get nervous. I'm going to spend more time on the first five than the second five. Okay. All right. Proposition number one. Here we go. The Bible is our ultimate authority on what is true, good, and beautiful. The Bible is our ultimate authority on what is true, good, and beautiful. We do believe in submitting to governmental authority as far as our consciences will allow. When it is at all possible for us to submit to the authorities above us, we should always do so. But there are times when it is impossible for us to conscientiously submit to governmental authority. And at the end of the day, we have to say like the apostles, we must obey God rather than man. The Supreme Court is the highest court for this nation. It is not the highest court of all. There is a court that judges nations. And therefore we must base our thinking on this issue and our thinking on every other issue most fundamentally on what has been handed down to us in the pages of the Bible. What we have in this book is the deposit of apostolic teaching. What we have is the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. The opinion of psychologists, the opinion of sociologists, the opinions of politicians, they change over time. God's word does not change. It is our rock. And when we are able to affirm and to believe what the Bible says about any issue, we can be sure that we are on the right side of history, as it will ultimately unfold. We need to remind ourselves that the Bible is given to us by God. It is God's word from God's mind and there is no error in God. He has given us this revelation. To distrust this book is to distrust the God who is all-knowing and all-wise and all-good who gave it to you. We do not believe that marriage is the union of one man and one woman and covenantal union for life because that's what we happen to believe. We believe that because that's what God handed down to us. It is what he has delivered to us as truth. It's God's truth. It's not ours. It's his. And we will be judged by what we did with that truth and every other truth that he's given to us. God's truth, when embraced, leads to human flourishing, leads to human happiness. God's truth, when rejected, leads to human degradation, moral confusion, ultimately to sorrow and death. The Bible is our authority. We must stand on it, and we must never be ashamed of it. Proposition number two. Homosexuality is a sin. Homosexuality is a sin. Uh, There have been a number of books and, and articles and editorials written in recent days to say, no, 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 we've misunderstood the Bible. We have been misinterpreting the Bible. These writings claim that what the Bible forbids is not homosexuality, but, but something else, some, some other form of sexual immorality. And they've gone and they've tried to deal with the Greek words and the Hebrew words and, and begin twisting them and looking for places where they might mean something else. And it's, it's clear tampering with the Word of God to try and make it say something that it does not say, to make it be open to something that it is not open to. The scriptures are just not unclear on the issue of homosexuality. Don't let yourself be confused. In recent days, we've already seen a high we've already seen a number of high-profile Christian leaders begin to change their tune on this subject. And I would almost guarantee you that in the next few months and the next few years, there're going to be certain pastors, certain churches, Even whole denominations that are going to suddenly declare that they've come to a new understanding on this issue. In order to not seem like bigots, in order to not be cultural outcasts, they're going to change their convictions. And they're going to try and find arguments for why they did so. Don't be deceived, church. Don't be confused by the days that come. We are warned all over the New Testament epistles to expect such things. Is homosexuality a sin? Verse 9 and 10 of our passage are very clear. Those who participate in homosexual acts are guilty of sin. Paul says those who embrace homosexuality, those who who live in it, they should not expect to enter the kingdom of God. I could put beside this 1 Timothy chapter 1 beginning in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. "'Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, "'but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, "'for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, "'for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, "'enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine "'in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God "'with which I have been entrusted.'" Two passages, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, where you just have a list of things that are ungodly. And homosexuality is on the list. It makes the list. We're told that the practice of homosexuality is contrary to sound doctrine. We're told that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we could quote from Jude 7. We could look at many passages in the Old Testament to see the same thing. The Bible's not unclear before the eyes of God in the judgment of God whose judgment is the only judgment that really matters homosexuality is a sin but we have to go a little bit further proposition 3 homosexuality is a unique sin homosexuality is a unique sin There there is something unique about the sin of homosexuality. Which is why Paul focuses so particularly on this sin in Romans chapter 1. So now turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Because this is the passage that is at the very center of controversy. Of what the Bible says about this subject. Romans chapter 1. Now the key verses are verses 26 and 27. But before we come there, we have to recognize what has already been taught by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of God's Spirit. Paul has already taught here that all people, all people, all people are under the wrath of God. That's verse 18. The reason we're all under the wrath of God is that though we know that God exists, Though deep down, every human being knows that God is worthy of honor and thanksgiving, we have suppressed those realities, and we have tried to live as if God is not there. We've tried to live as if God is not worthy of our obedience, and we've tried to live our own lives our own way. We've suppressed the truth about God. This is natural man. This is, this is who we were before we were saved, dear Christian. This is, this is the condition of lost people everywhere. They are suppressing the truth that they really do know deep down in their souls about God, but they're suppressing it so that they can be comfortable in their sin. That's verses 18, 19, 20, and 21. Now, this wicked choice to not acknowledge God, this choice to not give him honor or thanks, but instead to pursue other things. This has had devastating consequences on who we are as human beings. Paul lists four consequences of suppressing the truth about God. Number one, futile thinking. Our minds are messed up. Number two, darkened hearts. What we love and desire are messed up. Number three, foolishness. We think we're wise, but we embrace foolishness as people. And number four, idolatry. We put other things in the place of God. That's verses 21, 22 and twenty three. And so this is what we've done to ourselves. We who were created and called good by God, we we were a pleasure to his soul, but we've now become abhorrent to him. Criminals, guilty of cosmic treason against the God of the universe. God made a covenant with man, a, a covenant of works in the Garden of Eden. And he said to Adam, if you will simply trust and obey me, you will be blessed forever. And he gave Adam and he gave us paradise. But if Adam disobeyed the the one command, just one, the one command that God gave him and ate from that certain tree, then those blessings would be forfeited and curses would fall not only on Adam but on all the human race. It was just and right of God to make such a covenant Adam broke the covenant. Adam chose not to trust and obey God. And as Romans 5 verse 12 teaches, when Adam sinned, we sinned. We sinned in Adam. He was our representative. He was our ambassador of the human race. And so his sin was justly counted on us all. And so the curse of God now rests upon the human race. And what we're reading in Romans chapter 1 is what that curse looks like. Especially beginning in verse 24 through the end of chapter 1. What you have is God's response to the sin of mankind. These verses are an explanation not of a future judgment to come, but the judgment that has already fallen at the Garden of Eden and has existed until this very day. It's all in the past tense because Paul was looking back on human history and he's recording for us how God has related to wicked man. But make no mistake, the judgment described in Romans 1 is a present reality for the human race today. And what is the judgment? We see it clearly spelled out again and again in the same refrain. God gave them Look at verse 24. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is God's judgment on humanity. As a human race, we don't want him. We want the things of the world. We have rejected him and chased after things that cannot eternally satisfy. We want things that can't meet our deepest needs to be our gods and forsake the one who can. We chase after sensual pleasure and earthly delight as better and more important than God. And the spiritual delights he offers. And how does God judge us? He gives us over to those things we want. He gives us over to earthly living, earthly pleasures, earthly delights. You want to forsake the fountain of living waters and turn to broken wells? All right, then, God says, watch and see what these broken wells do to you. Because over time, they're poisonous. God actively judges mankind by giving them over to these desires so that now in the human heart we burn and lust and passionately long for things that are trivial or harmful or even unnatural. And so look at verses 26 and 27. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So God has judged humanity by giving us as slaves to our own sinful desires. And those desires look different in every person's life. They work them out differently in your life and in, and in my life. Some people are more prone to certain sins than other sins. What were you enslaved to before you were saved? What sins had God given you over to that, that had a grip on your life? Self-centeredness, selfishness. Maybe more respectable sins like like gluttony. Was it an appetite for food that was beyond what is normal and proper that governed your life? Was it greed, desire for money, desire for possessions, desire for notoriety? But of all the sins that Paul could have highlighted to show how far humanity has fallen, he chose to use the example of homosexuality. Why? Why? I think it's because homosexuality is such a vivid, external picture of the internal sin that we've all committed. Romans one through 26-27 is not written just to homosexuals. It is written to every one of us as an example of the kind of sinfulness that we've all been given over to. God created you and me to be a certain way. We were created to love him, to know him, to find our joy and communion with him, and we've exchanged the glory of God for a lie. We've taken that which we were created for, put it away, and chased after things we were not created for. See the analogy? Here's what I mean. When I say that homosexuality is a vivid external picture of the internal sin we've all committed. Every one of us was created to find our joy and our dignity and our purpose in God. And we forsook him and turned to created things. And what does verse 23 teach us? Verse 23 says that among these things that we turn to is images resembling mortal men. Instead of things that bring us to God, instead of finding our delight in God, we've turned to images of ourselves. We look away from the creator to the creation. And so also in homosexuality, people turn from that which they were created for and they give themselves to something that resembles themselves. Males turning to males. Females turning to females it's not how god designed us to live and operate it's it's a perversion of god's design but it's a picture of what happens in the human heart every time any one of us sins because we're exchanging the glory of god for created things so yes homosexuality is a unique sin but only in this way that it presents a vivid external picture of what every one of us does every time we sin. And so I want to be very clear on the next proposition. Proposition number four. Homosexuality is not the worst of sins. Homosexuality is not the worst of sins. If if you're here this morning and you're struggling with same-sex attraction, do not think for a moment that the Bible offers you no hope. Same-sex practices, homosexual practices, these are not unforgivable sins. The reason this sin is highlighted in the New Testament is because of how vividly it illustrates Paul's point about all sin. Did you notice in 1 Corinthians 6 and in the list from 1 Timothy 1 that homosexuality isn't singled out as worse than the other sins on the list? It's just right in the middle of them. Greediness, homosexuality. Striking your father and mother, homosexuality. In both lists, sexual immorality of the heterosexual type, sexual immorality and homosexuality. If we were to pick the worst sin of all, homosexuality would not be it. I think pride would be Pride is the root of all sin. And pride is what ultimately leads to all other kinds of sin. Are there any self-righteous people in this room? When Jesus Christ walked this earth, he offered salvation to every kind of people on earth except one. Who was the one kind of person that Jesus did not offer salvation to? They were the ones who thought they did not need a savior. They were the self-righteous ones, the prideful ones. The, those were the ones, Jesus said, who were furthest away from the kingdom of God. And so if you're here this morning and you're some kind of gay basher, sitting up on your holy high horse, thinking about how great you are and how perverse and wicked those people struggling with same-sex attraction are, I have news for you. You are the one in the greatest need of grace. Homosexuality is not the worst of sins. The tax collectors and the prostitutes were closer to the kingdom of God than the Pharisees and the Sadducees in their pride. One thing we can see clearly from the Bible is this. Throughout history, people have struggled with same-sex attraction. That's why there's laws about it in the Old Testament. That's why there's exhortations and commands about it in the New Testament. This has been a regular issue among fallen people throughout the history of the world, and it's likely to be a continuing and a rising issue in the lives of people in this society and even the lives of people in this room. And we do not help our brothers or sisters who are struggling with this by acting as if their sin is worse than ours. It's not. Proposition number five. Same-sex marriage is not simply a disordered marriage. It isn't marriage at all. It isn't marriage at all. This is the question that Christians are hearing when we take a stand against same-sex marriage. The argument goes like this. Well, you Christians attend weddings all the time that are sinful. The Bible says Christians aren't to marry non-Christians, but all the time. Believers marry unbelievers, and you Christians, you all go and celebrate the marriage. The Bible says that uh, that, that, that an unlawful divorce shouldn't happen, and after an unlawful divorce, there shouldn't be remarriage, but it happens all the time. You Christians, you go to those weddings, and you celebrate. How hypocritical then to say, oh, same-sex marriage, that's different. I'm not going to go to that, that wedding. How would you respond to that? I would suggest our response needs to be twofold. Number one, we need to say, yes, we have been hypocritical in the way we've dealt with marriage in the past. There has been too much divorce and remarriage among God's people. Mount Herman, I saw this week that the divorce rate among professing atheists is lower than the divorce rate among professing Christians in the United States. That is shameful. And there have been far too many occasions of Christians marrying unbelievers against the express word of God. And on top of that, we have treated weddings as mere social occasions. We've, we've turned weddings into mere celebrations and belittled the fact that a wedding is a covenant ceremony before God with public witnesses who hear those vows and promise to keep that couple accountable to those vows that were made before Almighty God. We've lost reverence in worship services in our day. We've also lost reverence in weddings in many cases. We've belittled what it is. Let's face it, some of the low view of marriage that exists in our culture right now is not the fault of unbelievers or secularists. It's the fault of the church. We need to repent. We need to recover marriage as a serious, glorious, extremely important covenantal relationship. But we also must be clear that there is a true difference between a disordered marriage and a same-sex marriage. In John chapter 4, Jesus spoke with the woman at the well. And he spoke of how she had been married to five different husbands. And the man she lived with now was not her husband. This woman had been a part of several different disordered marriages. But Jesus still recognized them as marriages. A believer should not marry an unbeliever. But if he does, it's still a marriage. It's a disordered marriage. But it's a marriage. This is where same-sex marriage is different. It doesn't matter how many times a man says I do to another man or how many times a woman says I do to another woman. It's not a marriage. Dr. Al Mohler uses the illustration of a church. What makes a church a true church? For a church to be a true church, it must have the preaching of the word of God. It must have baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, Calvin would argue it also must have the mark of church discipline. If you don't have preaching, if you don't have meaningful membership, if you don't have uh, the sacraments, you don't have a church. As Baptists, we would argue that our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who baptize their babies, that's a disordered church. We would argue that our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, they're not doing church rightly. That's a disordered church. Wilson PCA, that's a disordered church. Guess what they would say about us? We're a disordered church over here, from their view. But you know what? We recognize both churches as churches. We recognize the gospel is preached in both places. We recognize that baptism and the Lord's Supper is happening in both places. We recognize that meaningful membership is happening in both places. They're both churches. Guess what? You may have a church with a big sign that says First Baptist Church outside the door. But if the gospel's not being preached, it's not a church. Ooh, that is not a reference to First Baptist Church Rocky Mount because Dennis Darville preaches the gospel. I guess I should make that clear. That, okay. Don't take that wrong. Okay. Do, do you see what I'm saying? There's a difference between a disordered church and not a church at all. Okay? It's the same thing with marriage. There is disordered marriage and there is not marriage. And in the eyes of the Bible, there is no such thing as same-sex marriage, no matter what the legal system calls it, what the people involved call it, or what the culture calls it. It just doesn't exist. God defines what marriage is. Proposition number six. Number six. Every person, regardless of their beliefs or their practices, is created in the image of God, has inherent dignity, and should be treated with respect. And I showed some fellow pastors yesterday my outline for today's sermon, and one of them said that based on what they were seeing in the culture from Christians yesterday, I needed to say this one twice. So I'm going to say it twice. Proposition six, every person, regardless of their beliefs or practices, is created in the image of God, has inherent dignity, and should be treated with respect. How should we relate to those in our culture who disagree with us, who passionately affirm same-sex marriage? Those folks that were rejoicing outside of the Supreme Court on Friday. Those people in our neighborhoods who are involved in homosexual activities or relationships. How should we as Christians relate to them? And the answer, of course, is with love. With love. This is how Jesus Christ relates to us. In our sin. We're to show them compassion. We're to care for them and be good neighbors to them. We're to remember that they are deceived by their sin. Sin has a hardening and a darkening effect. These these people, all lost people, are walking around blind. Don't be mean to blind people. Just because God's given you the eyes to see, remember, you were once blind too. So there is no room for judgmentalism. There is no room for, well, you'll just never get it. There's no room for any of that kind of talk. We are to relate to these folks with love and with prayer and with compassion. Proposition number seven. We must proclaim the Bible's teaching on marriage and sexuality. Or we will fail to be salt and light in this world. Someone might say something like this: "Why not just keep quiet about what we believe as Christians, about marriage and sexuality? Because maybe if we ignore this subject, maybe if we just don't take a stand on this subject, we can better reach out to those people who are struggling with these things. Let's not talk about marriage or sexuality, Just talk about Jesus. The problem with that is the passage that we read earlier from First Timothy chapter one. Because in that passage, we're told that the law of God was given particularly for the purpose of bringing sinners to repentance. In other words, we have to be firm in preaching the law of God if we're ever to get people to see their need for the gospel of God whole list that whole list of of sins of immorality of things that the law of god forbids and then he says but here's why the law was given to bring these people to repentance if you don't preach the law they won't see their need for repentance it's a gospel issue on whether or not we preach what the bible says about this issue what did martin luther say Martin Luther said this. He said, If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages... And the loyalty of the soldiers is proved. And to be steady on the battlefront besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Meaning, if this is the issue that our culture is dealing with right now, this is an issue we must be clear and address. (coughs) Proposition number eight. We should be quick to engage with and share the gospel with all people regardless of how they identify themselves did you notice verse 11 of 1st corinthians 6 verse 11 1st corinthians 6 and such were some of you the gospel has the power to save anyone who will repent and believe jesus christ has the power to cleanse all of us from our sins Every one of us is born prone to certain sins. And every one of us actually commits sins every day. In fact, if, if we could see the depth of our own depravity, we would be so humbled to the dust that we would not be even able to, to lift an eye to look at anyone. But Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And he now sends us into the world to bring the gospel to sinners. All sinners. Red and yellow, black and white. Rich, poor, middle class. Liberal, conservative, independent. Those struggling with same-sex attraction. And those struggling with opposite-sex lust. All people around us are staggering through life in desperate need of the love of God, and we have the message that they need most. Don't be afraid to take the gospel to anyone, and do not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. Proposition 9. Number 9. This is important. Make sure you get this one. We should not require people to clean, them, to clean themselves up before bringing them to church or showing love to them. We should not require people to clean themselves up before bringing them to church or showing love to them. We do not say, you're not welcome to come to this church and hear the preaching of God unless you meet these moral requirements. That is not what Jesus Christ has done with us. We want everyone to come among us and to hear the preaching of the word of God and the good news of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. More than that, we want to be engaging with all kinds of people, opening up our homes to all kinds of people, sharing our food with all kinds of people, engaging in conversations with all kinds of people who need Christ. If I require someone to give up their homosexuality before they can come to church or before they can enter my home I'm expecting them to do what only the power of Christ can do in them Jesus Christ called us to himself just as we were and then he changed us and he made us new but he called us to himself just as we were We didn't give up any sins to come to church or to hear the gospel. And so Mount Hermon, let this just be a principle for us. Let's make sure that those doors, let's make sure that the doors to our homes are always open to people who need Jesus Christ, period. Period. Proposition number 10. Number 10. We should require people to show true evidence of repentance before affirming them as brothers and sisters in Christ. We should require people to show true evidence of repentance before affirming brothers and sisters in Christ. So here's the difference between people being welcomed to come and sit under the preaching of God and being welcomed as a member and being considered a fellow Christian. Church membership should always be reserved for those who have given their lives to Christ and are giving evidence of that through repentance so no we will not allow someone living in a same sex relationship to join our church we won't do that if any of our church members fall into that sin and refuse to repent of that sin they will not be allowed to continue as church members but that's no different than how we treat any other sin if a person is living with his girlfriend and refuses to marry her Or to end that relationship. He won't be allowed as a member either. You see the requirements for all of us is the same. To be counted among God's people. We must give evidence of repentance. By seeking to live obediently to Christ. All people are welcome to come into this church. May this sanctuary be full of sinners who need to hear the gospel. But membership is reserved for those who show evidence of repentance Certainly by not living in obvious or outright sin. Now let me be very clear. We're entering a new frontier in our culture. We, we need to be clear about these things up front. Repentance does not mean that when a person who was involved in homosexuality comes to Christ, that they no longer struggle with that sin. Just the opposite. From the testimonies that I've heard recently from folks who were saved out of homosexuality. They weren't in a battle before they were saved. Homosexuality seemed natural and right for them. There was no battle. They were were comfortable in it. It wasn't until they came to Christ. It wasn't until the Bible got a hold of them that the struggle began. Following Christ meant leaving behind their comfort with homosexuality and beginning a life of of having to fight those impulses in their lives. Mount Hermon, there could be a day very soon, even, even right now, when we might have brothers and sisters in Christ, true believers, church members, for whom this is the daily battle that they are fighting. And we still need to come around them and love them and encourage them and care for them as they fight this sin in their lives. Even as they come around us and love us and care for us and encourage us as we fight the sins that we're dealing with. No longer can it be us and them. We are all dealing with various sins. We are all longing for the day when Christ will make us holy. So yes, we will require folks to show true repentance before joining our church, but that does not mean that we won't have church members struggling in this area. If our culture keeps going the way it's going, we may have lots of folks eventually struggling with these kinds of things. We are all broken people, but we are being healed by the great physician. And one day, we will all bear the image of Jesus Christ perfectly. So what are our ten propositions? The Bible is our ultimate authority on what is true, good, and beautiful. Yes, homosexuality is a sin. It's a unique sin. But it's not the worst of sins. Same-sex marriage is not disordered marriage. It is not marriage at all. But every person, regardless of their beliefs or practices is created in the image of God, has inherent dignity, and should be treated with respect. We must proclaim the Bible's teaching on marriage and sexuality, or we will fail to be salt and light in this world. But we should also be quick to engage with and share the gospel with all people, regardless of how they identify themselves. We should not require people to clean themselves up before bringing them to church or showing love to them, we should require people to show true evidence of repentance before affirming them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Mount Herman, may God give us grace, courage, and a compassionate spirit to believe and do these things. Let's pray.